Well, what was all that noise about? Well, that's a song written about the Birkenbeiner cross-country ski race held worldwide. We're here with Will Wallace today, and Will's going to tell us a little bit more about that race, along with some other things. Hey, let's get going. Hey, Will, welcome back to Clean Slate Farm Podcast. How are you doing today? How are you doing, sir? I, if I was any better, I'd be you. Nice. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you guys got a snowstorm out there, right? We got hammered with snow, and it's about time. I, I think on the last podcast I had mentioned that I was concerned that we had a limited amount of snow up in uh, the Hayward, Wisconsin area, and that it could affect, you know, potentially a drought in the spring and, and you know, that scenario. So mm-hmm. we got plenty of snow this week to make up for it. It was, it was a lot of fun running the snowblower, especially since I talked to – Eric at uh, Garden Fork about a week ago about snow and using the snowblower and how I hadn't used it. And then this last week, I've I've burned a lot of hours on it. Right. Well, you've got the one on the front of the, uh, what's a Kubota tractor, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I have that. And then I have a Troy built push model also. Okay. Yeah. And Eric just did that video about the, uh, the Troy built. That's a nice machine. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I like the fact that you can independently control the rear wheels, which yeah. allows it to steer a lot better on the push model. I have, you can't really do that. They're too fixed. So it's a fixed yeah. axle. So that's, that's a nice addition to the, uh, the snowblower this year. Yeah. I have the same, same thing. I have the, uh, the way you control how you steer it is you push harder with one leg. Exactly. <laughs> I don't have that wheel thing, but I do have heated handles. We've had beautiful weather here. It's been like, the past three days have been like 50, 60 degrees. The bees are all flying. So it's beautiful. So yeah, we're, I've been prepping we're in the a, garden. We're in a winter wonderland here. I mean, we got, I think, 11 inches of snow on Thursday. And then mm-hmm. um, we had another probably six to seven inches of snow on Saturday. And it's not heavy, wet snow. It's that kind of fluffy stuff, but there's just a lot of it. And like, you can't ignore it. It's it's high enough that even uh, my pickup truck would get stuck in the driveway, you know, yeah. if I didn't take care of it that. And when the snowplow comes past, you get that huge ridge down at the road. You know, yeah. the, the ridge at one point in time, I think was over waist high. Wow. Yeah, we haven't had that for a while. But we've, our winter here has been, we've, we get... A little bit of snow and it melts, a little snow and it melts, but it's been a very mild winter. And I think that's why our bees are coming through. We started out with three hives and we have three hives. So I think we're going to make it through. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah we're uh, looking at possibly honeybees this year. I'm trying to, I might have to build a paddock first uh, with some electric fence around it because we have mm-hmm. a big problem with bears. I mean, somebody actually stated that they had saw uh, some of the bears moving around already, which was pretty surprising because I know we had some warm weather, but I wouldn't think they'd be out this early, but I know they will be around by the time summer comes. And if we get bees, sure. they're definitely going to be there messing with them. Yeah. Well, you can put them inside the, uh, your, uh, where, where you got all the trees, couldn't you? Yeah. I, I, I've been looking at that. The thing I've been trying to figure out is how much space do I need to have around it to mow the lawn? And the only reason why I say that is if I put it up against the fence, I'll have, I'll be with inside the, the fenced area, but then in order to mow the lawn inside of there, how close can you get to the front of the hive before the bees start, you know, you have to mow it with a bee suit on, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I made the mistake of doing that one time I was mowing in front and I thought, I'll just, I'll just, you know, I was 20 feet away from, they weren't bothered by it. And I figured I'll make another pass. They weren't bothered by it. I made the third pass. And they were bothered by it. I, I looked over and there was this swarm coming at me. I was like, okay, I'm out of here. 
That's that's exactly what I'm thinking is, is it's it's already tight quarters in there. And as the trees start to fill out, I know that it's going to get even tighter in there. So it looks like there's a lot of space today, but those canopies are starting to, you know, make shape. And as they make shape, I'm going to get less and less space. So for me, I looked at it. I have some posts left over from um, the project when we did the, the fence. I just have them stored in the barn. And I also have electric wire left from the... Uh, the fence we put up and the charge controller we have for the electric fence is strong enough that I could run a little wire underground, make a 10 by 10 square that has electric fence around it with a nice little gate on it, put some gravel down so that uh, I don't have to weed whack or mow underneath them and then, you know, put them in there and they'd be good to go. But I'm trying to find the right placement of that right now. Yeah. And the bees will find the trees. Oh yeah. When when your fruit trees grow into blossom, they'll find it. So Cool. So are you doing anything? Well, you've got a lot of snow. So I was going to say, are you doing anything for spring prep? But we are actually, I'm, I'm actually doing a lot of stuff in the barn. We've been, I've been looking at working on some of the, you, you kind of have a punch list of uh, equipment that breaks over the year and you're like, okay, I got to get to fixing that. And when we had some of the warmer days, I was in the barn, um, you know, fixing the shoot on the riding lawnmower or, you know, tuning up the, um, you know, the weed whacker, those types of things. Cause those are easy winter projects that, you know, you turn on a podcast or the radio or something like that and throw it on the workbench and you can do it in the barn and you don't necessarily have to be outside to do it. So I try to get a lot of that stuff done that and get our maple syrup stuff ready, our buckets yep. and all that stuff. We've been, you know, we washed out all the buckets. I got the evaporator ready and all that stuff. Cause we're going to be tapping probably in the next two or three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. We're in full swing for maples here. So we, like I say, we've had a very mild winter and everybody with the maple syrup is, uh, they're just like, hooray, because, you know, we've got some warm days, cold nights, perfect for them. Yeah. I see all these videos online of everybody tapping and boiling and all that. And I'm just looking at, you know, 18 inches of snow in the yard on top of what we already had. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not even close. I couldn't even like to walk across the yard in some spots, the drifts are so high, it's up to waist high. So you just kind of have to wade through if you ever have to go out in the yard for something. Yeah. So uh, how's the Kubota working? You you had mentioned at one point you had uh, a leak or something. I yeah, think. Um, and I'm still trying to figure this out. Uh, there's a, you know, you park it for, you, you snow blow and then you park it. And when you pull out from, from wherever it is, you see the little marks on the ground and stuff. And what it is, is I'm leaking hydraulic fluid from somewhere. I had a huge blowout last year and we thought we got everything fixed for it. And one of the things I've noticed this winter is, I'm starting to leak, you know, a, a couple of drops here and there, but it's starting to build up on the on the ground. So I put a piece of cardboard underneath, a little trick to figure out where your leak is coming from. Yep. A piece of cardboard underneath that's completely clean where the area is leaking. And then overnight, you know, let the tractor sit there. The next morning you come out, you look where the mark is on the cardboard and then you look up and it has something to do near either the hydraulic filter or the... Uh, there's a, a couple couplings where the, the distribution block is for the hydraulics out of the pump. Yep. Either one of those couplings are leaking, uh, like a gasket is gone or something like that, or um, the tank. But it's been a pain. It's been now, you know, probably two months, and I still haven't tracked it down because you go in and you wipe everything off, but then you snow blow, so everything is dirty, so you got to wipe everything off, and it's like you have to have the perfect rhythm to, you know, find exactly sure. where that leak is, and it's not big enough that I need to take it into the shop or that I'm getting low on fluid, but I also don't want right. to make a mess on the floor in the garage. Yeah, yeah, I've got the same thing. It's where the couplings are. I know where it's coming from, and uh, all the couplings are tight. Uh, I mean, the, the connections are tight, 
but there's there's little seals inside where the coupling is, a little rubber gasket uh, O-ring. And uh, I had the, uh, the dealer came down. Uh, that's a long story. But the dealer came down. We did a service on it midwinter here. I was going to do it myself, but it, it precluded that. And they came down and uh, did an oil change, fluid changes, flush on the radiator, and got it ready. Uh, and I asked him to fix the seals, and he said, I haven't got the O-rings for that. He said, I have to come back. He said, you can do it. So I'm going to do it later on. We'll do a little video about that. Yeah. I mean, to tinker around on the tractor and things like that, I know that a lot of people are very, um, they're nervous about breaking into something like that. But, you know, a tractor is is no different than a lawnmower. I mean, it has an engine and, you know, the the parts kind of work the same. It's just everything's a little bit bigger. And there's, um, you know, instead of one valve, there's multiple valves or, you know, those types of things. And, and it's just kind of an extension of each of them. If, you know, you have one hydraulic line, fixing one thing is the same as fixing 10 because they're all the exact same. You just do it repetitively. Yep. One of the biggest problems we've been running into with the tractor this year is, Last year, they did some dressing work on the side of the road, which is they put gravel down on the edges and mm -hmm. it hasn't settled all the way in. So when the snowplow comes past on the blacktop, it picks up that gravel from the side and it deposits at the end of the driveway. Well, as I go through that pile of snow to snow blow it out, those rocks, throwing stones. I'm throwing stones and I've been breaking shear pins. I've now, oh. as of last week, I've broken 13 shear pins this year. 13. 13 of them. Because there's there's four on the tractor. There's or there's five, sorry. There's five on the tractor. So there's two on each of the rods, and then there's the one in the middle. So if I get it on the the ejector, I break that mm -hmm. one, which that one is the one that breaks the most often because it's where the stones get kind of caught in that that tighter that tighter funnel in the back there. Or like sure. if it gets stuck on the right side, you don't break one, you break both of them. So it's one of those things where you know, I, if I break it on the, if, if I break it on the auger, it's two at a time. If I break it on the, uh, ejector, it's one at a time, but yeah, I've, I, as of last week's snowfall, I've, I've broken 13 of them and I, I contacted Kubota and said, you know, is there anything that I can do differently to make it so that this doesn't happen? And they said, don't throw rocks, you know, <laughs> basically it's what it came down to. And I'm like, well, do I have to shovel that out by hand then? Wow. Well, it's only a shear pin. Yeah, no, and that's that's a good thing. I get to talk to the guy at the hardware store every time I go in, and he's like, "Shear pin again?" I'm like, "Yep." And he grabs the ones that I need and hands them to me, and we talk a little bit. And I grab a donut. Buy a case of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I grab a donut on the way out, and it's a nice way to talk to the guys in the small town. So now I, I got to shift gears here because I just remembered something. You had an issue I saw on on the Garden Fork uh, Facebook thing there uh, with glasses being etched and you said it ended up being almond milk yeah so i thought it was the water and we went through all the exercises to you know do the vinegar we did clr i did a number of different things and i noticed that i don't have any water spots or stains on anything else other than these glasses and then i was talking to my wife and she said you know, maybe it's the almond milk that's etching the glass because she drinks almond milk instead of regular milk. And if she puts the glass in the sink and doesn't rinse it out or whatever, we never knew that it would leave a mark or etch. And it looks just like yeah. water spots on there. And people are like, yeah, that's water spots. And it, it doesn't come out. Do a little research online to come to find out that there's a lot of people who have issues where if you buy certain brands of almond milk, if you leave it on a glass surface overnight, there's enough acidity in the almond milk, just enough that it'll start to etch. And over time, it'll leave those marks. So 
let's say you drink and then you put it inside the dishwasher, but you don't rinse it out and it sits in the dishwasher for a day or two till you run it till it's full. That almond milk is etching that glass. And over time, it'll start building up a haze or a film. And that's exactly what it was is now I have etched glass that, you know, the glasses still work and it doesn't make any issue, but, you know, they're not perfectly clear and it's hard to tell whether or not you have them clean. So we may end up having Mm -hmm. new glasses, but come to find out after all that work and sorting out, it was, it was almond milk that was causing the glass to get etched, which I never knew was a thing. Wow. Well, I guess I'm not going to be drinking any, any almond milk. That's, that's drink it out of a plastic cup, you know? <laughs> yeah, but what's it doing to your innards? It's like the, like pouring Coca-Cola on a chrome bumper. Yeah. You know, it, there's a lot of uses for Coca-Cola. Somebody said that you can uh, pour it in a toilet. Like if you don't have toilet bowl cleaner, you just pour that in the toilet. And the next day, yep. you know, your toilet's clean. It's like, Wow, I'll take another one of those at the restaurant when I have a pizza, you know. <laughs> Can I have the super size one? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Now, you were also playing with the sous vide cooker. You did a little video on that. How, tell me, what's your impressions of sous vide? Because we use those professionally in the restaurant that I work in. Uh, yeah. You have one that you bought or was was No. So, yeah. Somebody, so, somebody sent me one. They contacted me and said, hey, you know, we were talking about some cooking stuff. And they said, hey, how about I just send you one and you can try it out and, you know, give us a shout out or whatever it was. And what we ended up doing is we did a steak just as a test run. And that was kind of, let's throw a little video together to see how this all goes. And we we put a video on the YouTube channel. But the other thing actually that we shot last week was I did some country style ribs. And what I wanted to test out was the, the one thing for us is when we leave and go somewhere, we'll be out playing in the yard or going into an event like this weekend, we went to the Berkabiner and all that kind of stuff. And then we come home and we want to have dinner and I don't want to have a big process, especially in the middle of a snowstorm. You don't want to have a big process where you have to be on the grill. So we thought, Hey, let's try the sous vide. So we put the machine in there. We put, we, you know, put the meat inside the thing and we set it for six and a half hours or whatever it was. So we'd know it would be done by the time we got home. So then I just have to brown it on the grill, throw a little barbecue sauce on it. We were done. I was a little hesitant because we picked a, uh, a little bit cheaper cut of meat, but I'm like, well, let's see how this works. And we threw it all together. We left left the machine running. When we came home, it was in hold mode, sitting there waiting for us. And then when I was ready to go on the grill, I just opened up the bag, dumped the meat on the grill, threw some barbecue sauce on it. And three minutes later, uh, about five minutes later, we were sitting down and eating. I'm like, this is pretty neat. You know, this it, yeah. it brings a whole new scale to it. Because, I mean, you can do stuff in the crock pot and you could set it to run all day and make a roast or something like that. You know, you could do something in your oven, very slow and slow or things like that. But this this brings like pork chops and ribs and steaks and things like that to the point where I can have everything ready to go and, you know, just have to brown it on the heat up the grill and go. And that's a really short part of time. So, yeah, I imagine for pork chops, it would be a good thing because pork chops are probably one of the more difficult things to cook. And for those of you who are listening, we'll talk a little bit about the details of sous vide and why pork chops are difficult to cook. Never ever buy a thin cut pork chop. If it's under three quarters of an inch, pass on it. Because when pork cooks, the protein strands tighten up really fast. And if you overcook it, you're basically making the bottom of a shoe. So that's not a good thing. Always go for an inch cut or better. And then sous vide literally or or figuratively translates into under vacuum. It's a French term, and the way sous vide works is you set you you have a bucket of water or a container of water, and you put the sous vide cooker in the water, and what you do is you set your temperature. So the water gets heated to a certain temperature. Say you want a rare steak, you want to cook it to 125 degrees, 
you vacuum seal the steak, put it in the sous vide, and it will take it to 125 degrees and leave it there. And it stays at that perfect temperature. It can't go above that because that's the ambient temperature of the water and you're pretty much set. You want it a little bit more well done, take it to 135 and away you go. So it's a great way of cooking and we use it for banqueting sometimes where we have to cook off a whole mess of steaks and they all have to be a perfect medium medium rare. We cook them all a medium rare and then just mark them on the grill, send them out for the banquet. It's, it's a great way of cooking. Yeah, we, for us, I mean, it, the, it was... I was a little hesitant, to be honest with you. And I know a lot of people are. I mean, the idea of, hey, I'm going to throw my food in a plastic bag and put it in some water. How is that going to work? But it it worked out perfectly. And it, it just held it there as long as I needed to. And it was like, it got everything ready to the point where I could just do it when I wanted to, which I, I can see yeah. how that works really well for a restaurant. We were trying to figure out like why or how we would use this, but it really opens up the idea of, you know, throw a bunch of pork chops in there and it you know, 10 o'clock when we are going to head out to the property, we go do our stuff all day long. That thing low and slow just brings it up and then holds it at that temperature. And then when I'm ready to brown them on the grill, boom, it's, it, it's ready to go. And it, it, yeah. I think it's going to be something we're going to use more often in the rotation. I, I didn't think we would find ways to do it, but after doing the, the event with the Berkebiner and coming home and having the ribs ready to go, we literally made two sides. By the time my wife had the two sides done, I had the stuff done on the grill and we were eating within, you know, five, 10 minutes. And it was, yeah. it, it would have taken twice that if I had to take the ribs out and season them and do all the stuff and then cook them on the grill and not whatever. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing actually. Yeah. When I was at culinary school at the culinary Institute in Hyde Park, uh, this is back in 2003 and four sous vide was just starting to come in. And a lot of the chefs down there were, were, were hesitant about it. And there were some safety concerns because you're not cooking the meat all the way, or people might cook it to a temperature that's not safe. But, uh, it, it, it's come in the last year, it's come out a major way. So now you just mentioned Berkebiner again. Berkebiner is at ski race. Yeah, there's a ski cross. Yeah, and so we're kind of jumping around here, but that's okay. <laughs> there's a there's a ski race in the Hayward, Wisconsin area. Actually, there's uh, I think eleven of them in the the ski classic, and they're all over the world. And one of the locations, the American uh, version of the cross country ski race, is in Hayward, Wisconsin, every year. 1973, they started these ski races cross country. I think they go 50 kilometers. Um, in the race, you see a lot of Olympic athletes and all that kind of, uh, folks there. It's a big event that starts in the mm -hmm. telemark resort and then goes all the way through the woods and, and basically cross country. And then it ends in downtown Hayward, right down the middle of main street. And uh, last year they couldn't run it because there was no snow. We had a really weird snow year this year. It was perfect conditions. The weather outside was great. And so we went up as some fans and got to see some great athletes, you know, do this. But then after kind of the wave of athletes come through, they also open it up to people who qualify for the ski race. And I think there was, I want to say 10,000 people who uh, ran or skied in the race this year. They have a time-lapse video oh online. My God, 10, yeah, they have a time-lapse video online of all of these waves of skiers. I'll send you the information. I think I've got a link on on our uh, Facebook group, but they uh, to watch these waves of people, you know, a hundred at a time, just going every, you know, so many minutes, and it, it's a constant flow of skiers. It's a really fun event. I know a lot of people. It takes a town of basically two thousand people and makes it a town of you know ten or fifteen thousand people overnight, and it's a buzz and it's yeah. awesome fun. They have stuff for kids. They have stuff for families. 
uh, they have couples events and all that kind of stuff. And they make it a, a big family to do. And it's, it was a really cool event. Wow. Do, do you cross country? You know, I do a little bit, but not enough to ever qualify for it. I thought about doing what they call is the mini Berkey, which is, you know, like how they have like the Boston marathon, and then they have the Boston 15 K and then the five K and the 10 K yeah. and so on. I've thought about, you know, getting to the point where I could do the five K or the 10 K version of the Berkey one year and, just to be able to ski because what you do is they have different start points that kind of feed into the race. So the main event starts at, you know, the 50 kilometer mark. And then at the five to the end, there's a starting point at 10 to the end, there's a starting point. And at, I think 20 to the end, there's a starting point. So like if I was in the five K I'd still finish the same route that everybody else is finishing and ski right through the middle of downtown and all that stuff which would be kind of cool. So yeah. I might try that in years to come. I'm just getting into cross-country skiing. We do more snowshoeing than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to cross-country ski. We were at a friend's house down about 40 miles away from where we were. And they said, oh, let's go skiing. And it's like, oh, great. So we put on the skis and we went. And they had us bushwhacking. I mean, we were caught. It was like bramble and woods. <laughs> and we get to the end. It's like, we're almost home. We're almost home. We had to come down this hill. It's like, wait a minute. We haven't gone down hills yet. So Joanne was in front of me and I was behind her and we're going down this hill and I couldn't slow down and I put out the ski poles and let's just say I drew blood. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was scary. So, it's a good athletic sport. I, I mean, it's, it's great to get it outside is. in the it's winter. And for us, we have all these ATV trails all over our property um, and we mm-hmm. use them currently to go snowshoeing. So uh, Cameron has a set of snowshoes. My wife does and I do. And we'll get everybody together and we'll go, you know, hike on a little trail. I've got a, a little mile loop right off the house. And then if you want to get really hardcore, we've got, you know, the three mile, the six mile and the seven mile loops on the property. And you could go out and you know, cross country, um, hike these things. And I, I've been looking at the idea of, could I ski it and, um, you know, make the trails a little wider in some spots. Cause currently it's specifically for ATVing and, um, summer usage. Yeah. But if I widen some of the trails out, I probably could very effectively cross country ski on the property. Yeah. It's fun. We good, good workout. I don't do it anymore though. I'm, I'm, pay, I'm not, I'm not, a, I love looking at the snow and I don't mind shoveling and plowing snow but I don't want to be out there playing in the snow anymore. I've reached that age. It's, it's not a good thing, Will. <laughs> I got probably, what, another 10 or 15 years before I get to that point. So I'll keep, I'll be, I'll, I'm going to keep going. I, I, I look at it as it, it's an easy way to keep away from the cabin fever of winter. Yes. Especially yes. since you guys are in spring and you have bees and I see everybody planting their stuff in their gardens. And I'm like, I would have to snow blow for an hour to get to the ground. In order to even start, you know, so to see, to see the well, dirt. <laughs> Eric has been teasing me on the Garden Fork discussion group. Um, he had posted something regarding a shack for um, maple syrup evaporation. And I had made some comments and he's like, well, there you go. Now you can make a, a giant maple syrup glass evaporator building, uh, you know, making fun of my uh, outhouse with the glass, glass, glass doors. Door. But then... Um, on the same on the same point, I've actually considered building an actual greenhouse to see if we could um, one bring our evaporation indoors to you know make it a lot easier because it tends to be cold even during our maple syrup season. And then number two is have it double as a way for us to start seeds in our season because literally we do not plant anything until Memorial Day weekend. And usually we make it to about Labor Day weekend and that's it. So we have a very, very short growing season. We're on zone um, three 
three A, I think, which is a very yeah. very short season. Yeah, we're zone five, five uh, A, and it's about to say I don't because we're at an elevation of like fourteen hundred and fifty feet. I don't plant anything until after the end of May. I'll I'll start everything, but I don't put it in the ground because I could. We've had frosts at the end of May. It's killed everything. So I just don't think. Do that you do anymore. seed starting then? Um, yes, I have a little goofy. We call it the the drugstore greenhouse. It's just one of those little tubular frames with a plastic that goes on the end. It's got zippers, and you can open it up and look in there. And it holds. I can get about eight flats in there. So I do all my seed starting gotcha. in that, and then transfer it out from there. And then this year I'm trying something new because last year I had, uh, we, I was working in the garden. I looked, I said, what's that plant? I looked and there's little, it was a little lettuce coming up and it was volunteer lettuce seed that blew away and it started a lettuce. So this year what I did was I, I got, the beds are all ready to go. So I raked one out and I planted spinach and lettuce seed and I'm letting mother nature have her way with it. Let's see what happens. I have okay. nothing to lose. Do you have so grow lights then too? I do okay. not. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I have them, but I didn't use them last year. Uh, this year I probably will cause I've, I've got some tomatoes that I really like. They're a dwarf tomato variety, uh, that I want to grow and I want to make sure those get a good start. So I'm going to do those under. Do you have the, the greenhouse then facing a South facing window or how do you handle it? We have this, we have a huge picture window facing South and it's dead South and it's gorgeous. So I just put it in that window and it gets great sunlight and things grow. Yeah. Well. We're considering because we are further North and the, the angle of the sun, we don't really start seeing good Southern sun till probably late April. And one of the things that we're considering mm-hmm. is, is getting a setup where we have a couple of grow lights where we can kind of get things started and get things going under that. Because no matter all the windows on the South side of the house, like I said, we don't get that good deep penetrating, you know, spring or right. late sun or late winter uh sunlight until you know april so we got to figure out some way to kind of bridge the gap and i think we're going to have to do it with some lights yeah i i may be building uh one of my products this year is uh i think i'm going to be building a greenhouse uh i've been every once in a while i'll drive by the the lumber yard in the in town here and i'll pick up a few two by fours and uh, accumulating the material for that. But I'm going to try to build a greenhouse among other projects that I've are got you, going Are you going to put year. poly on the outside of it? Or are you going to use old windows or are you going to use plastic? Uh, okay. It's going to be poly. Yeah. If I can find the plans again, I'll show you. I'll get, send a link to you. It's uh, it's great. It's a nice little greenhouse. It'll be 10 foot by 12 foot. And it's just all I need just to get some stuff going to keep some stuff over winter. And I may heat it. I can run a wire out there to the spot where I want to nice. put it in. We'll see. But I've got bigger projects that have to be done. So what are your projects then for this spring? Uh, spring, I'm probably going to do the greenhouse. <laughs> uh, we're gonna. I have a couple of projects going on. We have to do some landscaping out in front. And then we're going to put underfloor heating in. Our garage is, our house is over the top of the garage. And we have baseboard hot water. I'm going to change that to underfloor. So I'm going to run PEX, type, PEX pipe underneath the floor and nail it on they have these um heat distri- heat distribution panels they're a little like nine or ten inches wide and they've got a little channel down the middle you put that over the top of the packs nail that to the floor and it's in be- the packs is in between that and the floor and it nice. helps distribute the heat we have that uh, so, in-floor heat in yeah. the uh in the sunroom on the back of the house when we did the remodel and that warm tile in the mm-hmm. middle of winter is always awesome. Yeah, they say it cuts down yeah, on heating bills. Yeah, I was surprised. Too. Our propane, propane bill and our electric bill are at the lowest they've ever been. 
We we had when we moved into this house, we had oil heat. We ran one winter with that, and the price of oil was like three dollars and ninety cents. Was like this is going to stop because we had a five gallon, five hundred gallon tank. Uh, so we went over to propane because at the time propane was like wow, this is great, seventy nine cents for a gallon of propane. And the following year, propane went up to like two dollars. <laughs> it's, it's, it's better than oil, but it's ridiculous. So I rather yep. cut down on the heat. We have a guy now trying to help us. We've talked to him about installing solar panels on our house. The way our house is situated, it's perfect for solar. The, the fella came over. His One guy is the sales guy. The other guy, they're brothers. And the other one is the engineer guy. And he crawled up on the roof and he had all these little sextants and things and star charts. And I don't know what he was doing up there. And he came down. He says, this is the best roof I've ever been on. <laughs> so he they want, they want to put solar panels up there. And he told me recently... He's, I can supply with our panels, we can supply a hundred percent of your power and pump power back into the grid. They'll owe you money and we can do it about one third of the cost, one third less of the cost than we originally talked about a year and a half ago, which was about $34,000. We'll have to talk at some point in time. Uh, That's one of the projects that's on the docket this year is getting power up to what we call the upper homestead property. Um, so at some point yeah. on our next podcast, we'll have to talk about solar sometime and figure out what you guys are doing and, uh, and, uh, the hows and the whys, cause it is something that we're seriously considering. The problem with our house is because we've got the propane heat, we use electricity, but our, in New York state, uh, we get charged for the electricity and we get charged for a delivery fee. The delivery fee is to the utility and they pass through the electric power cost from whoever we decide the power buy the power from the delivery charge is always more than the, than the electric bill. So our bill is like 110, $112, $115 a month. It's like nothing. So payback time on a unit that's going to cost us about $20,000, even with tax breaks. I don't know. So to, to make you go wow for a second at our property in Wisconsin with all the energy saving efficiencies that we put in. And I literally designed the entire place specifically with the idea about, don't $33. Tell me. Oh. Oh, yeah, we man. paid well, $20 in fees, taxes, and transportation stuff, and then probably use between $10 and $15 worth of electricity every month. And it's not like we're sitting around in the dark or anything no. like that, but LED light bulbs and all the efficiencies yeah. and things like that we put in. That's why the guys at the solar companies are trying to get a hold of us saying, you know, you don't use much electricity. You would actually overproduce probably by 50%. And the amount that you'd sell that back would easily cover. Mm-hmm. You'd be actually making money you know so during the summertime you'd make enough of a credit that in the wintertime when you have shortfalls on power and you had to use some of the grid power that then that credit would offset and you'd probably have you'd never see an electric bill again well someday that we might do that we have to we have to sit down and go over the finances on that see what the the cost benefit ratio is but it is the house the house is perfectly exposed for that it's it's amazing and our garden sits perfectly exposed on a, on a small hill. Uh, so I have a terrace garden and everything. It's just, it's amazing property here. We're, we're blessed and very grateful we have it. So, but anyway, well, Will, I know you've got to get going so, uh, we can wrap up here. Thanks for joining us. And, um, thanks for having me talk to you again. Hey, anytime. Take care. There you have it. Another podcast with Will Wallace. Will calls himself the podcast hobo because he's bouncing around between different podcasts. Hey, you can find us on YouTube at Clean Slate Farm, our website, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Clean Slate Farm. If you would do us a great favor, and that would be subscribe and leave comments in iTunes, 
that would help us uh, have people find us a little bit better and we could increase our audience. That would be greatly appreciated. Anyway, thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you in a week or so. Bye-bye.